Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. It's Christmas! It's Christmas! It's Christmas Day! Oh my God! I didn't okay. think it was going to come this year! He's been! He's been! He's been! He's been! It's Christmas! He's been! It's going to be two hours of this. <laughs> He's been! It's Christmas! Happy Christmas! Merry! Merry Christmas, Nathaniel! You! You, boy! What day is it? Oh, um, you, Governor! It's it, why it's it's December the twenty fifth. It's it's it's, uh, it's it's Christmas Day, uh, 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 Mister Mister Scrooge. How festive is this? This is the most Christmas. Oh, you didn't Christmas go with it. You didn't. I thought we were going to do a. Oh, we keep doing Scrooge. We did say something like, "Oh, I'm I'm happy from my from my head to my my garters or something." He he starts going off a bit at that point, doesn't he? Oh, is it? Whoa! He does all that. It's, is it wrong to say that um, I preferred Scrooge uh, when he was a bit of a cunt? Well, oh, when he's, uh, I, I suppose, I guess he's certainly be quite annoying, couldn't he, as the uh, jolly Scrooge? Yeah, absolutely. He's certainly more interesting. Um, but also, you know, uh, when he's when he's jolly, do you know how long is that going to really last? Yeah, well, he's jolly for the rest of the time because the people say that no one kept Christmas. As well as as Mr. Scrooge did from that day on. Yeah, I think that works. But but also, how many good years did he have left in him anyway? <laughs> you can he never was... tell in those um, in Victorian times. You can never really tell how old someone is, can you? Like it's like well, you, uh, you can't, can't work out how old he's meant to be. Is he meant to be? Well, well in the book, I know he's like always um, like he's a, he's very old and withered and um, uh, and like hunched over and kind of. Yes, craggy. he is hunched over. Yes, because it was. It was written back in Charles Dickens' days. He was uh, twenty-eight in the uh, in the in the book, um, all the way through. What's interesting about the book is, all the way through the book, they refer to Scrooge's nephew as Scrooge's nephew. Then at the end, they just say he's called Fred, and you go, "Why don't you just call him Fred all the way through?" Then he's been going. Then Scrooge's nephew said this, and then Scrooge's nephew said that. At the end, he, they just call him Fred. But there doesn't seem to be a significance in the name Fred that they would hold um, back. Well, maybe not in that book, but there certainly is a little bit of significance in the movie Fred Claus. Of course, maybe that's what they were thinking of. When, maybe uh, that's where. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe that's not what Charles Dickens was thinking of. Maybe he didn't think that uh, in a hundred years' time they'll make a uh, Vince Vaughan comedy where he plays Santa's less famous brother Fred, but maybe uh, there's more to Fred Claus than first meets the I do like A Christmas Carol, though. It's one of my, uh, like... Which yeah. is your favourite? I think... Mine is I Ding think... Dong Merrily on High. <laughs> it's going to be stuff like this for about two hours, guys. This is our Christmas special. Uh, you're listening to Fan Club. <laughs> my what, do think, uh, what do you think of the, the cow, the holly and the ivy? I really like it. But it's a proper dirge, isn't it? The Holly and Navy. Yeah, I think that that's that's one of the examples where someone sat down with sort of like a spider diagram, thinking, <laughs> what, what, what are the things Christ that are about? Yeah, what are the things that are about Christmas? And they've gone Holly and Ivy, 
And then they've started the song and uh, they've gone, I've got a tune, but I'm really struggling with the lyrics. And then the deadline approached and it was like, OK, it's literally going to be about a couple of twigs. They barely got a tune, to be fair. It's a proper, like... Uh... What do you talk about? The holly and the ivy. If you're at home, join in. When Did... they are both full grown of all the summings, the, the four calling birds, three friends. That's the one. You got it right. Um, I um yes. Yeah, so the audience is the fact. My name's Nick. This is Daniel Metcalf. There's always a delay there. Is that because um, do you do you respond immediately when I say uh, this is? Yeah, I think so. I don't. I'm not catching a delay. Maybe this is like something. I'm not actually that. But it t- maybe it takes a while for the message to get to my brain. But right. I, in my, I wonder if it's a Zoom thing where there's like half a second. I wonder how much of our lives this year has been kind of like uh, uh, delayed by Zoom. Oh. Worth thinking about. <laughs> so, Christmas! <laughs> it's Christmas, it's Christmas. It's, uh, so you're joining us on our special uh, Christmas Day fan club. Christmas uh, Day got, special. We're like, we're we're Christmas like Day special. horses on FUBAR. Uh, we, we, we are. This would be the tradition. We're like, Morecambe and Wise, only... Uh, only uh, we're, uh, we got, uh, we're both wise. Uh, we're two wise men. Um... <laughs> And we're on our way. Have you put it on your Christmas jumper? Yeah, I've got one. Do you know what I was about to say? It's a bit warm for a jumper, but that's you know because what? I'm, I'm in my flat. I'm in... I think it will be. I think it will be, but I'll get festive. But I've got my radiators on um, because it's Christmas Day. Why not? Why not push the bloody boat out? Uh, <laughs> uh, I can hear the pots and pans uh, clattering around in the, in the next room. Uh, which is worrying because I live alone. <laughs> uh, I can hear, um, I can hear uh, the sound of children playing and uh, and, uh, and and people celebrating and having a nice time uh, because the walls in my flat are very thin, and uh, I'm going to have to write a note. I think an anonymous note, post it through the letterbox, and say, "Keep it down." Some of us are trying to uh, 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 concentrate. Um, so, first rule of fan club is tell your friends about fan club. Thanks. I don't think we did that last week. No, I don't. And the second, second rule of fan club is please, for the love of tell your friends. Right. But you know what? There's no need to tell your friends today. Uh, today yeah, is a day off. for you. Have a day off from telling your friends. Uh, you know. But tomorrow, start all the, all the more early. He says to me. I don't... Um, um, you see, I've got this little red mark on my face. Can't see it. It's very, it's very faint. You can't. You can see that red mark. I'm pointing right at it. Can't see it. I can see it on my camera. Why can't you see it on your camera? You can see it. It's a red mark on my face. Can you Maybe see a little it? bit. Maybe a little bit. Just say if you can see it or not. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I can't see it. There's a red I'm mark close. right here. Look at that. All of my skin is the, is the exact right same colour, and then I've got that bit right there. I've got that red mark there. Do you know what that is? What is it? That's a third-degree burn from bubbling soup. It came out, spat right in my face, and uh, burnt my face. Just last night. Uh, this was after after. Uh, this is this is on Christmas Eve. It happened. Yes, on Christmas yes. Eve. December 20th. Whenever, whenever you're listening, they begged us not to do this episode, didn't they? They said, please, don't, don't do one on Christmas. That's the campaign. To... 
We've campaigned for this for you. I, I, yeah, and I was, uh, uh, they said you're only allowed to do a Christmas one if you've got a really good guest, uh, but uh, we haggled them down. So, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, we were talking about Christmas Carol. What is uh, what's your favorite? What's your favorite version of Christmas Carol? You said. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I like Alistair Sim, and I was going to say, what's your favorite one? Um, but uh, the thing that Christmas Carol is, it's like, uh, I, isn't it like there's Dracula and there's like the Three Musketeers? But I don't think Three Musketeers has been done in a while. Uh, and Dracula's done like every so often. But it, it's like, it feels to me like the Christmas Carol is the most retold story mm. in uh, pop culture uh, history. I'd never like, read the book till a couple of years ago. And you've I read was, the book? I've read the book. And it's great. And I had that thing where I went, Do you know what? This Dickens, he's he's pretty he's pretty on it, isn't he? He's good. It's really funny. Is it, a, is it? Is it a long read? No, not at all. Not at all. Hours. Hours it would take you. No. Um, so it's quite long. Um it's and what they say, which is true, is that the Muppet one is probably the most faithful to the book. Yeah. And it, it's great. It's really funny and it's really sort of smart and um and it kind of tells you what the characters are thinking as well and the narrator also appears to be a ghost in it which is quite nice so which oh, i think right. might be quite spooky when you're reading it well so it's a it is a ghost story though isn't it it's yeah. is a christmas it's yeah. a Chris, christmas ghost story um so uh hmm is uh, are there any are there any changes i mean how are the other versions of christmas carol less accurate that i mean it's just you just know how it's going to end don't you yeah but it is more about the muppet one is more accurate in that it's more about a kind of redemption and a return to the man he was and it's more about the idea that you know it's it's got that weird thing where he obviously resents his nephew because his sister died and he loves his sister and it's more that it's painful since so this thing that he's kind of He's miserable because essentially he's had quite a tough life as well. It's not that's that not in Muppets though. That's, that's not in the Muppets though, is it? Um, well, you get you get more of the backstory, don't you? I feel like in the other versions, you only get you only get the kind of his rise, don't you? It seems to be like his rise from being a little bit kind of, but almost as soon as he gets the option to make some money, he goes, "Yeah, I'll have some money." But I feel, well, I, and it's I very when you see, I suppose when you see Alastair St- Sim. Uh, you think, well, this guy was always a cunt, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so when he when he redeems himself, it's sort of like a little bit like, oh, oh, there was some good in him, right? But really, A Christmas Carol is the Darth Vader story where he started off good, he lost his way, and then he gets redeemed by, mm-hmm. you know, the ghost of Ben Kenobi. Yeah. Uh, and Yoda, and then eventually the ghost of himself, at the end, uh, as he watches his own body get burnt on the forest moon of Endor. Um, and I think that, in a way, the Star Wars trilogy... Well, the Star, the Star Wars trilogy is very much kind of like the story of uh, Darth Vader, isn't it? It's kind of... Uh, uh, the, I mean, the Star Wars trilogy... Uh, the Star Wars franchise is very much uh, the story of A Christmas Carol, where you have Darth Vader, as he is... Uh, in the original trilogy, 
um, and he gets uh, uh, over the course of that he gets redeemed and he gets visited by three ghosts and that is the ghosts of the prequels where you go back and see what he was like as a lad and then uh, the ghosts of uh, future uh, Christmas future which is uh, fucking dreadful so then it's all about him like going oh fucking oh, I better I better accept love into my heart and uh, be a good dad to Luke uh, and by the way uh, tell Leia I'm sorry and uh, now I'm dead uh, and that's basically Christmas Carol in a nutshell so that's one more mark against the Star Wars franchise for unoriginality. Um, oh, it's, it gets worse by the second. Um, my, so who else was there? There was George C. Scott. He was, a, he was one. Yeah, I've never seen that. Have you seen that? No. There was... Um, who, who was the other one? Who was the Albert British Finney guy? Albert Finney uh, in the musical. Albert Finney did it in the musical, right. OK. Uh, I want to say... <laughs> Um, who was... It was not Victor Meldrew that did it. <laughs> who Rob did Richard it? Richard Wilson. Richard Wilson. He hasn't done one. Yeah, I don't know, has he? It feels like in the 90s, I'm surprised they didn't do a BBC version with Richard Wilson. Well, yeah, but, like, so outside of actually telling the story, you've got it kind of like... I, I really like Mickey's Christmas Carol, uh, which I always found goofy with the sort of, like, bandage around his face kind of, like, quite creepy. Is that Scrooge um, McDuck as Scrooge? Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, it would be. I think it's one of like the first appearances of Scrooge McDuck as well. Maybe he was a cartoon strip, and then they kind of used him. But like, his name is Scrooge, isn't it? Yeah, so his he, name is actually Scrooge. So maybe he was created for Mickey's Christmas Carol, and Mickey plays like Bob Cratchit. And I do actually think that Muppets Christmas Carol is kind of like the best version of it. Um, uh, I don't really like uh, Scroo- Scrooge. I like I kind of like Scrooge. I know yeah. people that really don't like it. I think it's great. I'm kind of interested why people don't like it. What's What's interesting about Scrooge was when it came out, like Bill Murray had basically gone into self-imposed retirement, and he was like, and he didn't really want to do it. But they kind of uh, then he saw, he thought, oh, maybe I can work with these kind of um, uh, writers, and I can come up with something interesting. And then Richard Donner came in to direct it. Richard Donner was a bit worried about directing it, but then he got on really well with Bill Murray when they met. And then they fell out when they made it, and then Bill Murray hated it. And he hated the whole process. And then everyone kind of, like, was just like, oh, right, this is a shit show. And um, when they actually marketed it, weirdly... Like, it's never occurred to me, but when they marketed it, they said, yeah. uh, Bill Murray is getting visited by some more ghosts this year. And, uh, and, and they basically marketed it all around. It's Bill Murray, it's ghosts, it's Ghostbusters, it's Ghostbusters meets Christmas, it's Scrooged. Um, I think there's some, I think there's some sort of like Robocop-esque like satire in there where they're kind of like talking about like, how cynical TV companies and advertising is at Christmas time. Um, and yeah, I like it. And Karen Allen's in it. She's really good. But, um, but they, apparently they spent ages and ages on the script. Well, it's, and... it's basically the first Bill Murray film, isn't it? Since Ghostbusters, he pops up in little shop of horrors, but there's no, there's no other Bill Murray films in between. Yeah, he sort of, which I think it's kind of like, it was really weird because he started making more films in the 90s. Yeah. And you were kind of like going, why aren't these Bill Murray films very good? And it's because, um, you know, he did like Larger Than Life, 
Osmosis Jones, he wasn't in it much, but he was in it. He popped up in Space Jam. Uh, uh, he directed Quick Change in 1990. Um, what was the other one? Oh, The Man Who Knew Too Little. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, about, the, uh... what about Bob, which is um, uh, some people's favourite film of all time? What's the Faraday Brothers one? Woody Harrelson... Oh, Kingpin. He came in as sort of like a... Uh, and he is great in that, but that film is so um, uh, tonally inconsistent mm-hmm. that it's... it's Because at some points it plays like a really broad spoof and at some points it plays like a, quite a hard-hitting drama about an alcoholic that's lost his career. At one point they cut his hand off in a uh, bowling ball machine and it plays as, like, pure horror. It's just absolutely just uh, sickening and uh, uh, and terrifying and they, they, they zoom in on Woody Howell's face as he's screaming as he's getting his hand removed. And then the next scene is kind of like... Uh, Randy Quaid taking a dump in a urinal because he he's never seen one before. And it's kind of like, it's just so all oh, over the place. Isn't it? Oh, there we go. Am I back? Am I back? You're back. You cut out for a second. What did you... I would, uh, it's all good. Um, but it, the, the film is just so all over the place. Um, and, uh, and then you've got Bill Murray and it's kind of like almost uh, a career best performance in it, where it's everything you kind of love about Bill Murray. Uh, poured into this bad guy, supervillain kind of character. The other one, I guess, is from around that time is Ed Wood, where he's just like a supporting character. Yeah. But, like, uh, I think the 80s... I think because maybe he did uh, Stripes, Ghostbusters, and then he was around, like you said, in Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, And then... um, What was she? Apparently, he's got a cameo as himself in She's Having a Baby. Uh, which is She's Having a Baby? It's Kevin Bacon, it's John Hughes, and um, uh, I, I'm in a WhatsApp group where it, there, was, um, there was a question which was, name the Kevin Bacon movie, which features cameos from both John Candy and Bill Murray. And well, maybe, I first, maybe I've never seen it. I don't think I've ever seen it. My first guess was uh, he said, she said, and they said no, and then I said, well, she's having a baby then, and it was. And so I was right. Makes sense that it's John Hughes because he loved John Candy. Uh, just opening a Pepsi Max cherry, guys. It's Christmas Day. Why not? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. What else is there? I mean, like, okay, so how many versions? Mad Dog and Glory and Wild Things. He's great in Wild Things. Mm-hmm. Like, Wild, right. Things is, Wild Things is one of them really sleazy kind of 90s erotic kind of thrillers. And... It, um, and it could be absolute disposable trash. And then uh, that's got Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon produced it. And I think because they, they wanted female nudity in it, Kevin Bacon agreed to go full frontal in it as well. So that, you know, to even things up a bit. Um, and it's got Matt Dillon in it. I think Wild, Wild Things was quite big at the time, but it's sort of like a forgotten gem where it's just this absolute piece of sleazy... It's set in kind of Florida. It's really hot. There's, like, alligators, in it, like, swimming around and stuff. And then you've got Bill Murray pops up as this um, kind of crooked lawyer. And you're kind of, like, trying to work out what sort of film it is. And then Bill Murray turns up and you go, oh, it's just meant to be entertaining. 
and then it's just this really entertaining piece of sleazy filth. It's brilliant. Um, Charlie's Angels. Is that 98 or something? I think it was 2000. Oh, was it as late as that? Okay, maybe it is a slightly different era. Mm. I guess now, yeah, we're crossing over into when he when he has his sort of um, indie comeback now, aren't we? Where well, Charlie's like... Angels, Charlie's Angels was um, also, also starred Luke Wilson, and so Luke Wilson was obviously part of Bottle Rocket and all of that lot, um, uh, and Tenenbaums and Wes Anderson, and then that must be what kind of like I, well, I don't know, but they, they must be kind of small circles, I imagine. And Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore, and um, Owen Wilson had made Home Fries together. And wasn't Luke Wilson in Never Been Kissed at some point? Um, right, yeah. And it's a true so fan project, wasn't it? The Charlie's Angels. It's fully like... Yeah, she, she, she produced it. And Bill Murray was such a cunt on set that basically he wasn't invited back for the sequel. So he got replaced by... Um, Bernie Mac. Bernie Mac playing his brother. Um, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> Um, and I, I, I say the word hilarious with a small h. Um, it was, yeah. So, but I don't know. The, like Bill Murray and Lucy Liu didn't get on with each other on the set. And I think if you're going to get rid of someone, it's not going to be one of the main cast. Hmm. But I'm, I'm sure he hasn't sort of had any sleepless nights about it. No. Doesn't he think um, that he have like a... Uh, is, it, is it an answer machine he has rather than an agent? So you never really know whether he'll do your film... You just have to leave he's a got, message. I think he's got a landline. He's got an answer phone to a landline. But, like, I mean, anyway. But, the, but, but Bill Murray's, like, this legendary comedian, but when you actually sum up all of the stuff that he did, he, did, he wasn't a lead in that many films in the 80s. And then when he was the lead in a lot of comedies in the 90s, they were largely kind of like, oh, God, why have you done... Why have you done this? Larger Than Life was with the elephant. Um, yeah, oh, fuck me. It's kind of... And then, so... So when he when he did Rushmore, that was kind of like, oh yeah, this is the exact sort of stuff you should be doing. Um, it's nice, but anyway. Writer, he's, he's good. He's pretty much good in most. That's not true. He's good. <laughs> he's, he's, he's often good, and uh, and he can he can do it. And I think sometimes he needs to remind audiences that when he comes back, he goes, oh yeah, I forgot. We love Bill Murray. Oh, I've also remembered Groundhog Day. That's the other big one he did, didn't it? Oh fuck, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> it, right? That's it. So he did. Um, so he did. Um, so Ghostbusters and Ghost it Stripes, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters Two, and then I think Groundhog Day is basically his best film. But I think it's also one of the best films ever made. And um, uh, and then he followed that up with kind of like stuff where you go, oh god, like none of this is. Groundhog Day. Have you ever seen Quick Change? Yeah, yeah. It's one of them really frustrating films where it's all set in one night and it's about people that can't escape a situation. So it's a little bit like After Hours. Uh, what's that other film that I saw? Oh, it's a little bit like um, Miracle Mile. Oh, yeah. Where you've got these... Uh, although After Hours is a straight-out comedy and Miracle Mile is kind of like a bit of a mishmash of stuff. But... Um, uh, yeah, Quick Change. It's got Gina Davis in it, who's brilliant. Uh, Randy Quaid again. Um, and Bill Murray. I don't know if he wrote it, he directed it. And he plays a clown that does... I don't know if I knew that. Uh, he's, he plays a clown that um, uh, 
robs a bank, and it's got <laughs> it's got one of I mean it's got one line in it that I've quoted my entire life where um, he gets out of the prison. No, he gets out of the he gets out of the bank that he's just robbed, and he's in disguise. And he goes, uh, hey, baby, up your butt with a coconut. <laughs> ah, it's funny stuff. Um, but it is like one of them really, really, really frustrating films where they've got to do something very straightforward and simple, which is get out of town. And then they spend 90 minutes not being able to get out of town to get to the plane that they need to get on. And you're just, oh, it's, it just winds me up. Winds me up. Uh, what about Bob? I guess it'd be another quite big one. Yeah, I did mention that. Uh, I did. And I did, yes. Uh, it, it is... Um, what about Bob? Yeah, I think that that's good. But it was kind of like one of the... It, do you know what I mean? It was kind of like... Steve Martin was so prolific in the 80s when you're kind of like growing up in a video shop and kind of like renting out Steve Martin every week. And there wasn't a lot of Bill Murray to pick from. So when he did pop up... It was kind of like, like in Little Shop of Horrors or something like that. You'd be kind of, but he's great in that, but um, in his one scene. But I was just so obsessed with Steve Martin at the time that no one else really got a look in. I did really like Bill Murray, but then, as I say, when you look back on it, there wasn't an awful lot to pick from. Mm -hmm. So when What About Bob came out in like 1990, that was like one of the things that, you know, you'd go around your mate's house and they'd rented it out from the video shop and you'd watch it there and then you'd kind of like watch it again. When I was a kid... But that's another... I know, I was going to say, when I was a kid, on the back of magazines, they'd often have like CIC video collections or whatever, and they used to have a Steve Martin one, which would be, you know, Roxanne, Man With Two Brains, The Jerk, All Of Me, and they'd have a Schwarzenegger one, which would be Raw Deal, Predator. Commando, yeah. Red Heat. Raw deal, yeah. And they were like franchises in themselves. And, like, it was only yeah. years later. I had no idea that most of those Steve Martin films didn't make money. I thought I think of them as being such kind of um, kind of standards of, like, all these, like, hit after hit after hit, only to find out that barely any of them made any money. They're all classics. All of the, You look at all of those films. I mean, I saw all of me at the cinema, like, last year, was it? And, um, and it's probably my least favourite out of all of those films. But, like, those Carl Reiner, early Steve Martin kind of films, uh, including uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Man With Two Brains, uh, Jerk, um, they're, they're all classics. And I think what happened was it took uh, VHS to make him a star, like a, like an international megastar. Mm. And then it's kind of sickening to think that probably uh, the film that he made, that, that, that his probably biggest earning movie that he ever made was something like Pink Panther or Cheaper by the Dozen, you know, where, like, much later in his career, but they were like these broad family films. And where, you, you know... Because I watched them recently, so it's kind of like you see these tiny little glimpses of Steve Martin actually going kind of like, oh, I'm going to put a bit of Steve Martin in here. But really he's sort of like sleepwalking through these films and then every so often he'll kind of like do a little like flourish with his hands or he'll pull like a face. And it's sort of like it's so bizarre to see kind of like 80s, 90s Steve Martin poking through in all of these kind of like 2000 films where it's almost like you go, don't bother, just stop, stop. And I am like uh, a total Steve Martin, I wouldn't say apologist, but like, I, I, I can admit when 
I mean, I was the only person to laugh at one joke in the packed cinema when I went to see Pink Panther. And as soon as I laughed, I covered my mouth out of embarrassment because it echoed around that fucking room. And I, 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 can, I can admit and acknowledge... I mean, I've seen Sergeant Bilko more times than I care to admit. But, like... and. And it is a bad one, but when you compare it to some of the stuff that happened later, you know, you didn't realise you were bathing in honey in the gardens of Eden. It was, it was like, uh, like Sergeant, I'd take Sergeant Belko over, you know, the last fucking ten films that he made. But um, I think I've, as I've gone on record many times, I think he's earned his right to never make a good film ever again. Sure. Because he just made wall-to-wall bangers for, like, 20 years. And then he had, like, a career as a playwright, a novelist, a musician, an art collector. Do you know what I mean? He's sort of like... He's a magician. Before he yeah. was even a comedian, he was he was a, a magician. In so a way, he's like, sort of retired. He's almost retired from making... So I've done that. Now yeah, I've got and he pops up into my, my other hobbies. One of my... One of, one of the things that... Um, uh, I was like happiest with at the beginning of my career was um, that w- like quite early on when I made enough money, I bought tickets for me and my dad to go and see um, Steve Martin at the Hammersmith Apollo. Um, and I remember it was um, it was his his him and his band, and it was going to be like bluegrass and banjo and stuff. And um, I remember thinking, because it wasn't comedy, it was him as a musician. And I bought the tickets, like, months in advance. And I remember thinking, well, he's not Woody Allen, uh, in terms of comedy. He's not not Woody Allen, so he's probably going to talk to the audience. He's got some level of showmanship. Whereas when Woody Allen, like, played jazz and stuff, he'd have his back to the audience and he'd just play his clarinet and he he wouldn't talk to anyone. He'd just sort of, like, come on and do music. So I did sort of like have an inkling that Steve Martin might talk to the audience. And then I remember like a week before uh, the show came out, a week before the show was on, it said Steve Martin uh, and his band, plus comedy. Uh, and then they started kind of like really hammering the fact that he is going to be doing, he is, it's not just going to be uh ban it's not just gonna be banjo it's not just gonna be banjo and uh he's gonna talk don't worry he's gonna do some and so when you i do regret him... that now I, I think at the time i had that same thought like i don't know if i want to see him play a banjo for two hours um, he's a really great musician but like uh, he doesn't sing either so he's written these songs i mean he did sing in the like 70s and stuff when he thought like he did songs like king tut and he was a musician back then you know there was like um uh, that flip side, it's like the Steve Martin Brothers album, where on one side he's like Steve Martin with grey hair, and on the other side it's him when he looked a little bit like uh, Jim Morrison. Um, he looks like Harrison Ford wearing a Jim Morrison wig. He does. Uh, and, um, I tell you, uh, who I, saw and so, I saw some footage of, um, is it John Fogerty from Creedence Clearwater Revival? Yeah, exactly <laughs> like Steve Martin. Exactly like Steve Martin. It's, it's crazy. There's a bunch of people that look like that look the same. I think it's like Steve Martin, Harrison Ford, John Fogerty. I think there's someone else, and they all kind of like look like you could just exchange them in kind of like biopics. Yeah, you know? it's weird, isn't it? Is you've, it got that, you've got that poster of Steve Martin, that the one you're talking about from that era, and um, you sort of it's remarkable like how handsome he is. He really does look like an absolute like leading man. There he is. He's up there, but you can only see his hand clutching that. 
famous ban- banjo of his. Um, yeah. So when we went to the Hammersmith, it was like three quarters full, and it was, it was like empty seats and stuff. And all of the jokes that he did basically ended up on that um, Martin Short and an evening you'll forget for the rest of your life. Oh, really? Uh, Netflix special. Uh, which which was fine. Me. My dad is such a huge... Um, well, he, he liked Steve Martin as a comedian, but he's um, he plays the banjo, and uh, or he used to play the banjo, and he's like a musician. So my dad enjoyed it just on like the musical level. But, um, but it was like one of those things. I've never had enough money to be able to buy my parents a house, you know, which is like the ultimate dream of showbiz. But um, but I did manage to, with one of my first paychecks, uh, have like um, uh, yeah, go to go to watch one of my heroes uh, enjoy Steve Martin for an evening. There you go. Um, so uh, yeah, so things before COVID, wasn't it? It was like the week we were going to go. To Royal Festival Hall, weren't we, to see... Martin. We're going to go to Royal Festival Hall. Uh, um, you, you didn't go to see Bill Murray with me, did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah we went to see Bill Murray together, didn't we? Mm. Um, um, that was like a different experience where that felt like everyone had drank the Kool-Aid in that room, where it was Steve Martin reading aloud next to a cellist. Bill Murray. Oh, sorry, it's Bill Murray reading aloud <laughs> works of American literature stood next to a cellist, and everyone was going absolutely fucking mental. And it was just kind of like, what is this? What is this? Because he's not a stand-up, so I wasn't expecting him to do stand-up, but I don't know what I was expecting, but it was kind of like... I enjoyed one it. Of the I, most... I liked it a lot, wasn't you? I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun. In retrospect, like, I remember the Steve Martin evening like with a lot of fondness. Um, and uh, I, I can still I can still remember it, but like the Bill Murray one, the further I get away from it, the more I think, what a self indulgent evil. Well, weirdly, I I listened to because they did it was based on an album I'd never heard at that point, and then yeah, right, I, yeah. afterwards I'd kind of listened to bits of it, and I was going, I actually like a lot of this, like just, yeah. you know. It's well, quite- I think it probably makes it probably makes a lot more sense in the context. Yeah. You know. Um, but also, I went to see Bernadette Peters uh, at the Royal Festival Hall. And, um, again, that was her singing, and you go, fucking hell, she's great at singing. And then all of her anecdotes were about how much the tickets cost and how expensive her Malibu uh, complex is. And you go, uh-huh, uh-huh, but maybe less of that, and uh, just do some that. more singing. Because I think they forget, don't they? Like, um, like, those tickets, those Bill Murray tickets were expensive. And they were certainly expensive for me. And people talk about it like, hey, tickets are expensive. And you sort of see, you kind of want to go, yeah, they are actually. Do you know what I mean? They might not be for you, but they, they really are quite expensive. So uh, go about it. They, <laughs> they are. But, and they also have that sort of like old school showbiz thing, which is kind of like, you're happy because I'm rich. Mm. And I can tell you what it's like to be rich. And you go, well, we've got, like, reality TV with the Kardashians and stuff like that, so we know what it's like being rich. So I'm not going to be happy just because you're rich. Do something. Sing your fucking song and fuck <laughs> off. Um, although I, I am in love with Bernadette Peters, so um, that doesn't that doesn't really 
go with that. But it's like when I saw the tickets for Bill Murray, it's like one of those things where you go, Bill Murray is at the Royal Festival Hall. What, the Bill Murray or a Bill Murray? Yeah. Can't be... Is it Christopher Lloyd? Oh, I've got tickets to see Christopher Lloyd do a, do a talk. And you turn up and it's the fucking producer. Oh, dear. <laughs> I saw, um, in the, when, when I was waiting to go in, did you see her as well? Thingy was in there. Uh, Tilda Swinton was at the Royal yes. Festival. Yes, yes, yes. I was quite excited to see her in the flesh. She's sort of a weird, quite weirdly, quite iconic person, she, who I almost don't imagine exists in real life. So I was quite excited to see her. Yeah, she doesn't look real when she's on film. And so mm. when you see her in real life, you know... Also, yeah. and of course she is, of course she is, but what was in, the other thing that was interesting to see her was that she was obviously just laughing and joking and having a night out and just seemed to be smiling and, and you go, oh, right, yeah, of course, she's just like this, just having a bit of a night out, she's having a nice time. Sure. To she, probably would, she, she, probably, she probably would have got a free ticket off him, you know? Sure. Um, she, she, of course she was enjoying herself, she hadn't just spent 80 quid. Right? For the most self-indulgent evening of entertainment I've ever seen. Uh, no, uh, my show's excluded. So um, uh, we've got to play a song, and then we've actually got to... We're ruining Christmas for a lot of people. Some people don't like Bill Murray or Steve Martin or Tilda Swinton or Bernadette Peters. Can't we've got to save... Fun. Nathaniel, we've got to save Christmas! So let's play a song, and then let's save Christmas! A-N-T-A-C-L-A-W-S. Santa Claus. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Bar Radio. It's Christmas! It's still Christmas! It's still Christmas. How exciting. Um, Christmas is my favourite day of any year, and this year it's even better because uh, I'm on my own in my flat. Um, I, I love it. Um, I'm having a lovely Christmas day with uh, my best mate, Nathaniel Metcalf, and we're here uh, doing... For, I, one of the things I thought was that we always kind of like save our guests as a surprise. Yeah. Um, but then we always advertise the show as this is our guest. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We that doesn't that. make sense. It's because so we there's, do. There's the not really. I think also kind of like uh, uh, I think I'm in sort of disbelief that our guest even shows up. Most well, of actually, I think at this point for us doing it, there is always that possibility that they might not turn up. It's happened before. Mm. <laughs> it has. It has happened. <laughs> um, fucking hell! The very first one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> the very first fan club, I guess. Maybe that was it. It sort of like it, it, um, scared us into the fact oh, that well, yeah, never won't. rely on. And I've I've not always shown. Don't rely on anyone. That's well, that's a Christmas <laughs> message. I had to film a Christmas thing for Dave in uh, uh, in early autumn once, and I, I was late to the show, wasn't I? Oh um, uh, yeah. So there was that. No, that uh, so in glitter or something. I think uh, fake snow, maybe it was. Um, so, uh, so did we did we wrap up on uh, what our favourite Christmas Carol vision was? I think so. I think mine. I think I said Alistair Sim. You said you didn't like Alistair Sim. Uh, like uh, no, I, d I, d I don't think I've seen the Alistair Sim version. Oh, right. It's like one of those... But, like, I, I, maybe my favourite ever version of A Christmas Carol is Blackadder's Christmas Carol, which I just... Um, which I, I really love 
because for anyone that wanted another series of Blackadder, then you've got kind of like this episode that's set in uh, Victorian-era London. Mm. And uh, it's outside of... It's just another one of the Blackadder ancestors. And it's about... Uh, Blackadder learning to be a, a, a cunt, <laughs> and it's just—it's just really—it's just—it was really funny, and it also sort of like scratches that itch of like, w- what if there was another series, and you kind of like have like this special. Um, so I watched a film. Um, I, I, I think Muppets Christmas Carol was probably um, talking of favourite Christmas films. So I would say my favourite Christmas films are uh, Muppets Christmas Carol. Uh, which has that song. Speaking of kind of like giving Scrooge like a bit of backstory, it had that song where young Scrooge uh, is um, uh, walking through a park with his lost love. Uh, and then they cut that because it was there weren't enough puppets in it and it was too boring and slow. So it's not in... Um, it's not in a lot of the DVD releases, and then they're making a big thing at the moment because they're reinserting it back into the film. So there's this film that kind of like is quite catchy. And in actual fact, at the end of the film, there's a callback to that song where they do a reprise, but a reprise, a reprise, um, yeah. a biopic, a biopic, a biopic. A biopic. Uh, so they do a reprise of um, the song, but the song isn't actually in the film anymore. And so I think they've reinserted it into the film. That's, like, the big thing. So I think Muppet's Christmas Carol is great. I really love Santa Claus the movie with Dudley Moore, and mm. I always used to watch that on Christmas Eve while I was wrapping presents. And then yeah, That's other... a much better movie than I think it gets credit for. I think that's... People think it's awful. I, th- I think John Lithgow's great in it, and yeah. it's and it's the reason why I like Dudley Moore. Yeah, it's also like um, it's produced by the Soulkind, Soulkind people, isn't it? They did the Superman movies, and when you watch it, it's called Santa Claus the Movie, and it's basically like Superman the movie, and it's taking this yeah. iconic thing and it gives him an origin, and it's basically almost like Superman. It's like Superman the and movie, but with but with Santa Claus. He's got a Lex Luthor villain. He's got a Richard Pryor esque sidekick. It's kind of like yeah, um, I think it was made around the same time as Supergirl. Yeah, and, and it's uh, like two it, like kind of movies have got a really similar structure to them. It was this huge sort of like disaster at the time, but I absolutely bloody love it. And um, and then uh, I always really love National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which oh. I think is the best out of the vacation movies. I rewatched the first vacation film recently, and it's like one of those films where Chevy Chase is so good in 90% of the film, and then there's some bits where he like overdoes it, and you go, okay. But, um, but, uh, because of all of like the uh, broad slapstick, gross-out comedies that followed it, it kind of feels really tame now. Where you kind of like go, "Oh my god, the they've they've killed a dog! Oh my god, the grandma's died in the car!" It's kind of like you go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I even probably prefer European Vacation, even though that's famously people people hate that film. But I, I like that. But then I had I had both of them growing up on video, and I reckon I watched European Vacation more. I think I particularly liked it because it felt like it was kind of connected more with British comedy by having you know Mel Smith, Mel, Mel Smith, and Eric Hyde. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I really, really love Christmas Vacation. I think it's like one of those... Uh, that's almost like Christmas tradition to watch that every I think it's quite a nice one for me, Christmas Vacation, because I remember going to see that in the cinema with my dad. And again, I, I know it was a one... It was one I used to see advertised in comic books, and it came out in the UK, I think, a year, a whole year after it came out in the States, because it's Christmassy. And, and then I was really excited to see it. And I went to see it with my dad, and I think... I would have seen it was about 10 or 11, I think, when it came out. And um, my dad, when he'd take me to the cinema, would always be bored, stiff, or have a sleep because he didn't want to see films I wanted to watch. And I remember him going to see Willow with him and him spending the whole film asleep. I remember Christmas Vacation coming out and him going, that was great. And it was like the first film I remember seeing with him where we both had like a similar experience of both really liking this film on the same level. I think it's interesting. It's like it's a Christmas film that is aimed squarely at dads. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of it's a comedy, and everyone can enjoy it. But I think it's like a thing that's about uh, the sentimentality and the frustration of. Well, that's what all of the films are about. It's about a dad, uh, despite his flaws, just really, really trying to pull out all the stops to do something great for his family, yeah. even though he's a dick. And Christmas Vacation is sort of like a per. They actually. Um, those films kind of uh, really justify their sequels because they go on an American vacation and it's like, well, what do we do next? And it's like, well, we go on a European vacation. And what do you do next? Well, we'll do a Christmas one where it's like Christmas at home. And I think that they're all different from each other, but they all, they're all sort of... And all the kids are always different, but they all sort of, like, justify... Yeah. I think that... And I have thought Vegas Vacation, like, uh, about two or three years ago. I'd never seen it before. Oh, I hate it. It sort of feels like a sort of false sequel, doesn't it? It doesn't really feel like... It's, well, it's not National Lampoon's. It's just called Vegas that. Vacation. It's not National Lampoon's Vegas Vacation. And, it, and from what I remember, it's like laugh-free. Like, there, yeah. aren't any, there aren't any real jokes in it, and it just goes on and on and on, and it's kind of like, yeah. Um, and I think that's where you go. You've already sort of done that in vacation you're just going on holiday in america again it's not bringing really anything new other than the fact that they're just trying to make another film out of it so i think yeah it's a nice little trilogy of films um what what about you what are your uh, favorite christmas films well my number one is always it's wonderful life because i think it's my favorite film anyway and i kind of have to watch that every year uh, but i would say scrooged is one that i do haven't done it this year but i do it most every year uh Scrooged. Scrooged. Yeah. Uh, and I'd probably do, yeah, I'd probably do the Alistair Sim one quite regularly. But, yeah, uh, I do like them. And I think they're the ones that I think, like this year I'm sort of thinking, oh, what shall I try and line up for Christmas? Uh, and I might do Batman Returns, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, I think that you can watch. I think that after Christmas, No. But before Christmas on the lead-up, sure. Um, uh, I'd say that my two least favourite Christmas films of all time ever are uh, Jingle All The Way, which is awful. And got what? I was going to say, that's, that, I didn't see that till later, and it's, it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I remember being, like, oh. pleasantly surprised. Now, I remember the trailers coming out, and it's, like, got Arnold Schwarzenegger punching... Uh, like all the beating up a bunch of Santa Clauses and stuff, and you just think, oh great, they've made like this action comedy Christmas film. And then it's not that, 
and it's just fucking terrible. And I think we've talked about it before, but like if they'd have gone the true lies, uh, he he's, he like works. He's like the head of like a, I don't know. Uh, Steve Martin's the head of a trainer company in Father of the Bride. So he's like the head of some sort of like local company and he's obsessed with work and then he needs to buy his kid a present. And it's kind of like, you should have just made him like a secret agent who is busy saving the world and the one thing that he's forgot to do is buy his kid a present and that's the thing that he finds the most challenging and the, mm. the biggest struggle is that, oh, my God, it's James Bond... Or it's Commando at Christmas, and he can't get his kid the present that he wants. And that's why he's got all of, like, these uh, special skills that he's going around beating up all these Santa Clauses and um, uh, fighting Sinbad for, um, for... Oh, my God, it's so fucking awful. Although it's got one of the last all-time great Phil Hartman performances in it. Yes, it but, does. Um, it's great, isn't it? But... He, and he's great. He's the reason to watch it, but the film is just dog shit. I think um, I thought it was much more cynical film than it turned out to be. You go, oh, it's kind of quite sweet. It's kind of... I thought... I, I don't know. I'd, I'd avoided it for a long time, just thinking it looked awful. It's so badly executed, you know. Um, I just... But I think that it's a generational thing. I think if you grew up watching it... It's probably like Santa Claus the movie. If you grew up watching it, then it's probably... And the other one is The Grinch, where the the Jim Carrey one, where every time I watch that, I just get incredibly claustrophobic and feel kind of like I'm having a, like a panic attack or yeah, a fever I dream. Saw that a couple of years ago. That, but again, weirdly, I thought that was better than I imagined it was going to be. They're the sort of films that I avoided. Um, apparently, it's a thing that Ron Howard made. He made it when he did because he realised that CGI was taking over everything. And if he didn't make it now, he wouldn't be able to make it how he wanted to do it. So it's almost like um, it's almost entirely practical effects, and now it gives it a more classicy feel. I think because uh, it's almost made after a time that they were doing CGI, but were deliberately yeah. using. Uh, what's it? Who, who did that? Who did the makeup? For, Rick Baker. Rick, what, Rick Baker, right? Yeah. Mm. So it's all Rick Baker and practical effects. And now when you watch it, it feels much more. Well, it feels kind of more eightiesy than you think it is. It's that kind of that it well that it actually is. Because because it's like you're so you're so used to seeing CGI now. When you watch it, it feels kind of very old fashioned and quite uh, big. It's on a sort of big scale, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, but uh, I think that's one of the things. It's kind of like I feel um, I feel like Jim Carrey was really claustrophobic in the makeup, so you feel kind of claustrophobic through that. But also, it's all filmed on sound stages, uh, which I normally don't have a problem with, but because it's so sort of like. It feels like um, so gaudy, like uh, Batman and Robin, where it just feels like it's just a it's just a relentless headache of like neon and sound stages and bright colours and uh, kind of like it's difficult to yeah. really know what Jim Carrey's aiming at with his. I think it's one of the big issues with um, well, kind of Tim Burton's films in general that. Tim Burton's films work best when they're on sound stages because he gets to create this whole kind of vision and you do get mm. this idea that he's doing it. Whereas something like, when you watch something like Planet of the Apes, it's so much weaker looking than the original Planet of the Apes because it's on sound stages and it kind of looks cheaper because it isn't outside, essentially. It feels like you're in this weird, like totally false environment. It feels like you're on a set all the time. What, on Planet of the Apes? Planet of the Apes. 
Yeah, but I would say that uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure is maybe his best film. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. And 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 that is just that is kind of like t uh, Tim Burton in the real world. That's yes, yeah. Him, he's created like this fantasy land, but it's very much like filmed on street corners yeah. and uh, uh, in uh, uh, landmarks and stuff. And I I think Pee Wee's Big Adventure, in terms of plot and in terms of like as a film hanging together, I think Tim Burton is obviously. I, th I think it's true. Like, when you watch his Batman films and it's style over substance, the plot doesn't keep you entertained. But moment by moment, it sort of gets you through. But with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, there's a really great plot that, like, drags you through it. And he's so on the cusp of being an irritating character, but he never is, and he, he's actually lovable. I think Pee-wee's Big Adventure is, like, one of... I think, on a personal level, it's one of my favourite films, and I think, it's, I think it's Tim Burton's best film. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Um, I'd like to see it again. It's it's great. Anyway, speaking of which, we've got four minutes to talk about uh, uh, stuff that we've seen. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, for, for our sins, uh, the big Christmas uh, release on Sky is uh, Doctor Doolittle, starring Robert Downey Jr. Um, uh, I woke up very early on Christmas morning and I've watched it. Uh, I've just finished watching it just before we started recording oh, the wow. show. And um, uh, and I have to uh, have to say it did indeed do very little for me. Um, <laughs> it, it's 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 um, it's crazy. It's a crazy film. Um, uh, yeah, it, 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 I don't Where's watch it. it. Set? <laughs> um, it's set in like a fantasy. It's sort of Victorian, but there's a queen in it, and it's not Queen Victoria. Um, okay. It's sort of like this fantasy land that has that has. Uh, dragons and stuff in it. They okay. do. There's, there's two. There's two things that stood out for me. One of them is that they nick the whole translation uh, gimmick from Hunt for Red October, where in Hunt for Red October there's a guy speaking in Russian, and then um, what's the? Is it the apocalypse? Is the apocalypse the word? Um, there's a word that's the same in English and Russian, and so John McTiernan famously directed the best Christmas film, Die Hard. Uh, in Hundred October, John McTiernan uh, slowly zooms into a, a, a guy speaking Russian's mouth, and when he gets to the word, I think it's apocalypse, but it might be something else. But when he gets to the word apocalypse, which is the same in English and Russian, it starts zooming out again, and then the actor starts speaking in English. Mm. And in Doctor Doolittle, there's this endless sequence near the beginning where he's talking like a gorilla. And then it zooms into one of the animals' mouths, and then the animals start speaking in English, and it zooms out again. And you go, you've nicked that from the Hunt for Red October. That's absolutely insane. And then there's another bit later on where he puts on like one of these um, copper diving helmets, and uh, he's being dangled off a, a boat. And then it zooms into his diving helmet, and you see Robert Downey Jr.'s face behind this glass screen. And it's like... What, like Tony Stark in Iron Man? You know, they do like an Iron Man joke, and you kind of like go, right, is that meant to be a reference to Iron Man? Is that not? But um, he basically does this impenetrable... Uh, it's meant to be a Welsh accent in it. Where all he's the way kind through. of All the way through. He sounds wow. like Harry Seacombe. He sounds like he's doing a bad Harry Seacombe impression. Wow. And it's basically... It was based on like, a historical figure. But, um, but uh, it's kind of difficult... He's trying to basically outdo Johnny Depp, and I guess it's because he's already done Sherlock, so he's trying to come up with an alternative British accent, so he's gone Welsh. But, um, like, 
it feels like the whole performance has been done in uh, post-production, like ADR, where the beginning of the film, so many shots of him talking are of the back of his head or he's got a teacup in front of his mouth or he's wearing a surgical mask, and then he'll face the camera for his reaction shot and then he'll turn his head away when he's got to talk. It's kind of like, at what point did, did all of that happen? Because it's like they planned to do most of the film in ADR anyway. Um, but it, it's quite weird because the talking animals seem more like they're talking than Robert Downey Jr. for the majority of the film. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it got panned at the time, but I didn't think it was going to be quite as bad as they said it was, and it, it's worse. Apparently in the test screenings, kids were getting up and running around and crying and fighting each other because they were bored, and I got up halfway through and I watched the second half of the film from the kitchen while I was making soup. So, <laughs> from scratch, you know, not out of a sachet, but, like, it was... Uh, you burnt, yeah, burnt your cheek. That's how I burnt my cheek. Um, uh, and that was on Christmas morning. Um, so... Oh, uh, and you watched The Keep, so what oh, makes The Keep... The keep? Well, the Christmassy connection to the keep that my friend Rob went out there a couple of years ago is that the end theme of the keep is Tangerine Dream doing Tangerine a, Dream uh, doing a, uh, a cover of Walking in the Air, but That's just because right. they obviously like the music, but you just can't hear it without going the Snowman. I guess it's less famous in America. Uh, I don't think the Snowman was a hit. The Snowman is one of those films that's grown over the years. And um, and in the 80s, the keep was very early 80s, wasn't it? So it mm. was, they would have just picked the tune that they liked and then yeah. it became like this uh, snowball. It snowballed. Yes. Um, right, so um, it's on the hour, so we're going to play a song and then we're going to get our guest in. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yes. What are we going to play? We'll What's play the song we're going to play? I think, uh, his choice, which is this... Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. It's Christmas! It's Christmas! It's Christmas! Um, and we're back live on Christmas Day. It's not live. It is live. It is live. This is one of the few of the year that we've done absolutely live on Christmas, on Christmas Day. Day. My, my turkey's turkey in the oven. I'm getting ready for... I'm not doing turkey. I'm doing gammon, I think. And um, I, I definitely am, because I got it out of the packet. And um, uh, I'm in... Uh, we're in the studio. We're not in the studio. I'm in my living room. Nat's in his washroom. And we're joined now by, uh, I say this a lot, but uh, I'm going to say it again. We're joined by living legend, uh, Mr. Richard Herring. Hello. Um, hello. Hello. How are you? Merry Happy Christmas. Christmas. Happy Christmas. Oh, my family are so cross with me coming up to do this for an hour. A whole hour. What a scheduling fuck up. Um, I, do, I do this, I normally do this at Easter because there's normally like a gap in my diary at Easter. And, okay. uh, and I'll be like, oh, I've got nothing on that weekend. I'll book a gig in the middle of fucking nowhere. Uh, I think I was meant to be in Plymouth this Easter. And then, and then people go, what are you doing for Easter? And you go, oh, yeah, I'm going to Plymouth. I'm going to be... On my own on that on Easter Sunday, um, but you've oh. done very similar today. How is your Christmas going so far? Well, it's Richard lovely. Hayward. It's beautiful. We're following whatever <laughs> the guidelines are now today. 
<laughs> certainly like a week or two ago we were allowed to do this whether we are now i don't know so there's I three think the rules are now it's like the purge isn't it it's like the silver <laughs> purge i think you can kill people in anything today great well, <laughs> i'm sure that will happen maybe not here yes. but somewhere so it's um, a stressful time anyway normally I, I quite like i quite like my covid year of not having to socialize or see my i, I miss my mum and dad who i'm not seeing but, uh, you know, not having to do family things has been all right. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of really stressed out about... Uh, I, I have been really stressed out about uh, Christmas presents this year. OK. Uh, I just don't think I'm going to get many. It's Aww. worrying. <laughs> yeah. No, um, but uh, normally... But uh, when I think back, normally what I would do is I'd go back to uh, my parents' hometown, St Albans, uh, the yes. day before Christmas Eve, and then I would do all my shopping on Christmas Eve, and I would get it done <laughs> in about two hours, Good. and then I would wrap it all, and then I would go out, and then I would ruin Christmas by um, uh, getting drunk. Um, yeah, and I'm not. Good. I've not done that this year. No. Um, but I don't know why I'm finding the prospect. I think it's because everyone is telling you that uh, Christmas shopping has gone haywire, and that's yeah. the reason why we've not been allowed to see our loved ones today. Mm-hmm. It's a shame. Keep it up. Um, Keep the energy up for the people at home. Keep the don't get. Sorry, it's Christmas. Yeah, it's thank Christmas. You. Sorry, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's, you're it's, right. You're it's right. Mainly for the radio, but me and Nick have dressed. I've got a Christmas jumper on. Nick's yeah. got a Alice Cooper Christmas T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And a, a Santa Claus hat. Yeah, uh, Richard, yeah. you're in a you're in a room with a green screen behind yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you can put anything you want behind me, yeah. and then green it can be whatever is... you like. I wore my. I've got a pickle Rick Christmas T-shirt. I've got a few Rick and Morty Christmas T-shirts. We might talk about Rick and Morty later. But my wife bought me three jumpers, Christmas jumpers that are Rick and Morty themed. One of them is Pickle Rick. So I should have worn one of those, but I did wear it the other day when we went to meet. We went to meet Santa Claus the other day. We and my children. How was that? Socially distanced. We were socially distanced. um, Although you know, when it's kids, little kids, they're allowed to be close to each other because apparently they they can't spread it to each other somehow by magic. Um, And presumably, Father Christmas can't either. It was lovely. It was very nice, actually. I've I've got a photo of uh, both. Well, every year my daughter's been alive, and my son missed one because we had we we had some kind of bug. one year but uh, my daughter get increasingly more comfortable with father christmas but she's always been quite suspicious of them the first couple are screaming and just looking terrified she now she now accepts that an old man will come into her house and give her presents and, <laughs> and, and accepts that that is fine but she is still suspicious i think but my son is completely into it and was blathering on about the north pole even though there was a group of kids there I I kept my belief of Santa Claus going for about three or four years after after the fact that it was believable. I think yes. that my parents were quite worried that there was a 14, 15-year-old kid that was still going, <laughs> so what's Santa Claus going to get me? And then uh, it was just like, we've got to tell him at some point. Yeah, did you have um, older brothers and sisters? I got an older sister. Okay, um, uh, that usually is the way you find out. I think she kept it going. No, we right. were just greedy. We just wanted double presents every year. Uh, keep it going out of guilt. Um, uh, I did notice that when Nat was not- uh, mentioning that um, he was wearing a Christmas jumper and I was wearing a Christmas T-shirt, that you looked down at the ground next to your chair yeah. to see 
If you can find any, what, Christmas I was just thinking, because I've been doing, I probably, I probably have a Christmas hat here somewhere. I did, I've been filming, so I filmed sketches up here, so I was just looking to see if I had any, uh, I had a Christmas hat. I've got, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll it's desperate, desperate panic. <laughs> here he is, there yes. Is. There we go, it's Christmas. He's only going to bloody save Christmas. That's, that's the best. Um, are you? Um, how much has having children uh, changed uh, the world? Are we going to talk about Christmas, I think? Yeah, so, that's good. Um, how much? It's Christmas Day, so this is for all the people that are cooking their dinners and yeah. uh, wanting something to listen to on Christmas Day. Um, how has Christmas uh, with kids changed your changed your outlook on it? I mean, it's much more. It's it's much more fun. I did, I was never. I, I always. I still feel a little bit that Christmas comes around too quickly. I think once a year is too too often. But obviously, when, obviously, when you're a kid, a year's a long time. But when you're a fifty three year old man, like it only feels like yesterday we were doing Christmas. With, you know, like because it starts in November, and then you know we'd listen to the Christmas the Muppet Christmas Carol, which I love. Well, it just comes around too quick. So I I, I would propose have Christmas uh, every other year, or maybe like the Olympics every four years. So it's really special. Um, but having kids, uh, you know, yeah, it is. And I think my kids now are three and nearly six. And so it's, it's a golden period. They both understand what it is. They're both really excited and all of that stuff. They are waking up on Christmas morning and seeing kids open their presents, uh, uh, is brilliant. So that, I think once you've got kids and putting, I never used to put up Christmas trees or decorations or anything when I lived alone. Uh, and uh, so I think like being drawn back into it a bit and having a family makes it uh, a bit more meaningful. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. Uh, well, I hope, I hope there aren't kids listening to this on Christmas day. Cause they've probably been for a shock. I can't imagine that there's many uh, children that would listen to this on Christmas morning, but we will, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> um, so you've, you've got, so you're in this green room room. Is this a room it's that you've deliberately made green? Well, I've got, it's a screen, so I can take it up and down. This, okay. is, this is my attic in my house where I do all my podcasts from now, this year. Uh, we, let, we set it up just before lockdown. We were sort of in, in, intending to do it anyway, um, just in case we wanted to start doing little, little bits and pieces. But I play snooker up here and I'm against myself and I film that. So if you if I take that down, you can see. There's a snooker, snooker table. Maybe you can't see because it's a bit dark. With that, um, with that green screen, it must be a bit confusing as to where to put the balls. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, it is. Uh, so, um, so I've been... Yeah, it's good. So I've been doing, uh, I've been doing lots of stuff. <laughs> I've been doing lots of stuff from up here. I've got puppets. I've started doing a puppet show uh, on Thursday night. It's called Twitch of Fun. Ali and Herring's Twitch of Fun. I've got a 128-year-old ventriloquist dummy called Ali. Um, I'll show him to you. That my great-granddad made. He might uh, start doing a few gigs soon. Hello, it's me, Ali. Ha, ha, ha. I'm Cheeky Knee. Hello. Yes, that's right. It's me. Yeah, it's got it's got the sort of slightly wiggy hair front. That's quite a nice gag, isn't it? That he's yeah, got that sort of. A, that's a good gag. That's yeah. It's that's a hundred twenty-eight year old joke. Uh, is one of his eyes doesn't open properly. I can never remember which one. Uh, so his catchphrase is, "I'm winking at it whenever he says something." <laughs> uh, I've just developed. I mean, it's, it is falling apart. Like his clothes are falling apart. He's pretty dirty. Um, 
Uh, it looks a bit like uh, Stuart Lee as well, so it's a sort of almost homage to my, <laughs> to my old... The, the, the 90s era Stuart Lee, so it's a little bit of a homage. But then I've ended up doing... I've got a Prince Andrew puppet that someone someone made me a Prince Andrew puppet and sent it to me unsolicited. Look at that! How good is that? That's incredible. Uh, I mean, this it's is quite, a proper. It's quite Thunderbirdy, actually, isn't it? Yeah. I've got yeah. it. Really, really works. Yeah, hello, it's new. Uh, uh, I was in Teacher Express in the King Hall, so you didn't have to worry about me. And um, so, yes, yeah, uh, I've been having, I've been having fun. You've got the listeners at home. It was probably lost on the listeners at home, but um, but Richard Herring's ventriloquism skills are, are second to none. It's amazing, isn't it? I've, well, I've just I've decided to do it. Uh, I did he, the the ventriloquist dummy turned up in the snooker. For, I started. It used to be just me one versus me two, but over lockdown, I did thirty-two players in tournaments, and one of the players was controlled by the ventriloquist dummy. And I kind of thought, I, there's something in this. And then also, I just I've done like twenty odd weeks of shows so i just thought i'll practice it as i do it you know and so you uh, and you sort of the joke is that it doesn't matter if it's good or not as we were discussing <laughs> when, we went, when we were filming weren't we nick that we, you showed yeah. me a guy doing um uh sort of bad oh, yeah so, and you know that's funny as well so it's kind of funny when you can't say your bees but i am trying I've, I've been uh i listened to nina conti who's going to be a guest on my podcast soon on adam buxton and she gave some quite good advice about how to try and say the letter b um, but uh, so I'm, I'm actually trying to get technically okay at it, but uh, it's more about having, you know, it's this thing of the internet now is it's you know, anyone can broadcast. So being like a, you know, a guy who used to be on TV 25 years ago, broadcasting from your attic, it's kind of fun to play around. <laughs> it's fun to play around with whether I'm having a mental breakdown or whether this is, you know, and I'm not quite sure. This is a cover. It's a good cover for whether or not you're having a yeah, well, it's, but that's sort of part. Of, so some people generally think I'm um, I'm in trouble, and uh, maybe I am. I mean, I do a lot of slightly <laughs> crazy things. This is the king of the world. He used to, he was on As It Occurs to Me. He was King Midas, and then uh, Chris Evans got that one sent him to me in a box because he'd been looking after him. And he and, I, and as he came out of the box, I just he just the character appeared. And he went, "I'm the king of the world. I'm the king of the world." And all he does is say, "I'm the king of the world." And if you quiz him on it, he. he uh, he just says, ah, because I'm the king of the world. That's right. Ah, and the king of the world. Ah, ah, and the king of the world. And that's the whole character. But people seem to love that one the best of all. So uh, his head's coming off a bit. So, yeah, so I've been doing that. So that's what. That's why I've got a green screen, so I can do... We've been doing a few... I, did, I brought back Peter Dibdin, who was the driving instructor's character I did in Fist of Fun, because I grew a m- moustache for November, which I carried on having for the short film, the, not the, the film that me and uh, Nick w- were in with this month. Are you going to have to uh, talk about that film? I don't know if we're allowed to. I think we are. She, she tweets about it a lot, so I think we're allowed to. I think to. we are. I mean, she sent all the pictures. Yeah, How yeah. did you get involved? We made she a film just, called... She actually got in touch via Instagram. I only joined it... I've, I have, well, I've only started doing Instagram in the last couple of months, really. And so a few people were kind of contacted. It was sort of a weird place to try and contact someone and offer them a job, I thought. But luckily, I checked my inbox, which, which I hadn't done for the, the rest of the time I've been there. Uh, and so, yeah, she just uh, offered me that part. So I don't know why. I mean, it's a sort of... Uh, a self-obsessed showbiz dad. So uh, I guess that there was a reason she thought of me. I don't know, but um, and I'm playing your dad as well. I, I've always, you know, I don't. I've mm. thought of myself as like uh, a young uncle to Nick Helm. I've never thought of myself as being a father figure to Nick Helm. But uh, you mentioned then you were 53. How do you feel about playing the dad of the 40 year old? <laughs> well, well, Marek Marek Larwood, who was on my podcast, that's the one that's gone out to. Uh, sorry. Uh, a week and a bit ago, off from Christmas Day, um, <laughs> he uh, 
he uh, he was saying, you should start, whatever the first line is, go, I fucked your mum when I was 12. <laughs> I fucked your mum when I was 12. <laughs> I should just put that in. So I, I, I neglected to do that because I was just about to go and film the first day when, when I talked to him. Um, yeah, it's, it's fine. They aged me up, which is fine. And, you know, mm-hmm. Nick, I think Nick was playing younger than he was. I, mean, I think Nick looked older than me. He's quite, he's quite, <laughs> yeah. he's quite I, fucked up. I did. Uh, but also, uh, there wasn't, um, uh, my beard grew. I, I think my, I had five days of filming over two weeks. Right. And you, you turned up on set with a moustache. And yeah. at the beginning of filming, I had a moustache. Right. But my beard had sort of slightly grown through a bit, so my moustache wasn't as prominent. Oh, OK. But it did, by just fluke, we did have, like, a family resemblance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, so that, yeah, was, we didn't, that was fun. We didn't particularly have any um, any dialogue together. I didn't we really have a dialogue with anyone. I was basically I just bolded in scenes, did a monologue, and fucked off again. So I don't like I I hardly related to another actor in the whole time. I think I looked at you once when I pretended you were th- looking like you were going to interrupt me, but you weren't. Uh, the woman playing my <laughs> wife, I don't. I bet who was brilliant. I didn't even really. I didn't get to talk to her, so I was only in the scene with the main <laughs> with the main character, and it was sort of talking at her. I hugged her and then talked at her and didn't look at her. And uh, she said, you didn't look at me. That's brilliant. And I, th- I hadn't really done it on purpose. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she said, that's exactly like my dad. Uh, so I think, um, but like, it turns out we're playing, I was playing basically a real person. You know, the her dad, the girl, uh, Laura's dad, uh, was in a band. And he married someone from Pan's People, was his second wife. So that, that I was the dad and that was the woman from Pan's People. Uh, sort of right, on. right. I, I didn't know the full uh, background. I knew it's I didn't until afterwards. If I'd kn- I should have researched the character first, shouldn't I? He was in a quite big band and, uh, and married a Pan, which to youngsters, that might not mean very much, but Pan's People were uh, the sexiest women in the 1970s. So... He did well. One of, them, one of them married Robert Powell, didn't, didn't she? That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Robert Powell, the worst Jesus. <laughs> Why is he um, the worst Jesus? We we had this conversation two weeks ago where we yeah, talked about Robert Powell. I like, I like Robert Powell. Got a lot of time for him. Three weeks ago. Uh, yeah, fine. Um, uh, the I mean, it's never going to be the best Jesus because you know Jesus was also Jesus and he was pretty. Well, he's up there. He was. He's <laughs> he's, he's like the. Uh, He's like the Charlie Chaplin uh, uh, runner-up prize of yeah. uh, Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so in terms of... Do you enjoy acting? I do, but I'm sort of glad that I don't get offered to... It's, it's fun, but it's also quite boring, isn't it? That's the thing. Unless you're absolutely the main part, and then it's quite hard if you're the main part, but there's a lot of sitting around. The second day I went in, when I just briefly saw you... It was literally 40 minutes and then we went home again. And that was great. That's perfect for me. And we weren't yeah. sitting in a cold church. But like we were, I was in a church from 7.30 till but about 12 hours in a cold church. And, you know, I didn't really get to say anything till after lunch. So it was that yeah, sort of and, what acting and also, is. And also they did your shots when everyone else had been wrapped for the day. Yeah, so yeah. Was so I was, there, I was there much too early and I stayed later than most people and there was one scene where I was in the background. If I was a big star, I could have gone, yeah, I can get someone else to put on my jacket and stand in the background of a shot. I didn't even, it wasn't even face to camera. Uh, but no, I do like yeah. it, and I like doing it every now and again, but I think, I don't know, maybe, you could maybe, I mean, you've done way more than I have. Maybe you could combine it with 
work, you know, like it, I, if I'd taken my computer and had a and I had a charger, which I didn't have on the day, I could have sat down and done some writing on the stuff, other stuff I was doing, you know. But it's there's, um, there is so much, there's so much sitting around yeah. when you're on a set, and um, I, I I remember we did the Reluctant Landlord Christmas special um, last year. Uh, when we filmed that, and there were three scenes, there were these three little scenes that we had, and um, the director on the day said, well, because it's all set in a pub, and they said, well, we're just going to combine all these three scenes into one mega scene, and it was basically Ramesh walking from the pool table to the bar, and on the way he was going to chat to these different people, and so he walked past me, and I say something, and I'm decorating the tree, I put on, like, two baubles and some tinsel, and we filmed that for two 12 hour days and I was in the background. I was in the background of shot. I was right at the beginning. So I got my acting out the way within the first four hours of the first day of filming. And then the rest of the scene took like another kind of 15 hours. And I was, I had to remember which baubles I put on in which order and which tinsel, just in case I was in, I was registered in the background shot. That was a fucking nightmare. Yeah, so it's a lot like that. Whereas, you know, I think I like doing things that uh, throw away and quit. Not necessarily throw away, but quick. So, like, stand-up works really well for me because you go on and do it, and if it, you know you've got to, if there's a mistake, you've got to deal with it. Doing this stuff I'm doing on Twitch is great for me because it's you know, and the podcast generally because it's just a conversation. You do a bit of prep for it, you work out what you're going to possibly cover. But doing this puppet show is literally pretty much all improvised. I've started scripting a couple of bits in it now, um, and you know that's just that's uh, that's sort of what I want to be doing rather than <laughs> rather than learning lines, which I'm finding a bit harder than I used to. And, uh, you know, and then it is just the waiting around. So I've really enjoyed the acting jobs I've done, but they've all pretty much all been quite short, except for maybe I did a thing called You Can Choose Your Friends, which I, I wrote and was one of the main characters of. It was quite an ensemble piece, which I guess there was a bit more acting in that for me to do. But like I said to you on the day as well, I very rarely get cast in other people's things so we know which is again fairly usual unless you're an amazing actor you know i think i'm i i when i started out i think i was more interested in acting than being a comedian you know but it was very hard to get into acting and uh or you know being a funny actor i'd like i'd like to have been in sitcoms and uh that sort of stuff and film comedy films and things uh but i would like to do a bit more i got i got an audition that i've signed a non-disclosure disclosure thing about but then it turned out they'd already cast it but it was like a it was sort of again like with this film. It's like you know, it's sort of quite an ego. The last big thing I filmed, I was sort of the romantic lead in, and now I'm the sort of pervy old man <laughs> who hasn't grown up sure. kids. And you're gonna go, how did that happen? And you go, oh yeah, like a fifteen years have passed, and b you're old. Uh, so it's it's a film about uh, with a really cool director about a band that I'm very interested in uh, and would love to be in. And then, the, but the part I'm playing is. Uh, someone they encounter who's a sort of fuddy middle-aged idiot but I would have loved to have done it and I actually did loads of work on it the minute I'd signed the non-disclosure thing uh and hadn't even got the script but I did loads of work on it and then I said and then what's happening with that <laughs> that film part they said oh yeah they cast it they just cut they cast it two weeks ago so it was so that was annoying but I would like you know who said you, that was that, that your was, agent that yeah my that? agent my agent sent it to me sent me the non-disclosure thing said you have to sign this before you get the script though it's like a famous scene that you can sure. watch on TV. So that's why I'd watched it and learnt it all, basically, because I wanted to be, like, bang on. Which, again, I don't... When though you do those reads for on, like, camera, I find that so irritating that I usually don't put much work into it. But I put loads of work into this one. Uh, but I, and I think I would have been good. I think I would have been good at it, but there we go. You never know. I've right, figured out what it is. I reckon I've figured out what it is. Yeah. 
yeah, okay. but I think as long as I don't say who the director is, it's okay anyway. But but um, hopefully the other actor will die, which is you know the good thing about being <laughs> a middle aged actor is there's that that's the chance there's the chance that possibility over especially, over the winter someone might just pass away and you get, yeah. get another chance. Especially at the moment, yeah. yeah. Um, my agent always says uh, that's gone away. <laughs> And you kind of go, oh right, okay. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I have not been cast then. Right. No, yeah. that's gone away, Nick. But you know, usually uh, I just go on with my own stuff, and I think like, I don't know whether that's my choice or everyone else's choice. I don't know if people think, oh, he just does his own stuff, so I won't, we won't offer him this. But I don't generally get offered much stuff like that, or you know, even I, I, that many I, auditions. I, I, I think that that was what was sort of really impressive about this film that we did. It's called Giddy Stratosphere, and I don't know when it's going to come out, but it's named after a song. But um, but they kind of like just did it, and I've kind of like spent oh like the last three years trying to get stuff done through traditional methods yeah. of like writing treatments and stuff, and I've kind of got to the point where I just want to sort of make stuff. Yeah. So it was really interesting being on this set where they kind of like made it all happen, especially this year that they made yeah. a feature film happen. No, it's amazing. So I think. Maybe that's, that's why they got me on board. Maybe maybe because that's the sort of thing I do. You know, I just sort of go, okay, let's go, let's try and raise a bit of money and try and get on with and do the stuff ourselves. And I think it's, mm. you know, it's. It, I I, I'm sort of in two minds about it because the danger is if you, you don't have the proper budget, then it doesn't look as good. But also, lots of things that spent loads of money on on TV and films are fucking terrible. And some people have spent millions of pounds on them, and you kind of think, just spend some money on getting a decent script and some decent actors. And you know, does if it doesn't look perfect or if there's mistakes in it, in the background, you know, it doesn't matter as long as as long as the thing is good, you know. But I mean, I think they were super professional. These guys. I'm not saying that they weren't uh, professional, but they were super. It was, it was a proper crew and everything. It was great. Doctor Doolittle cost 175 million dollars. There you go. And so it was Robert Downey. Junior on a screen for two hours. Yes. So, amazing. you know, if they just gave £200,000 to... $200,000 to, you know, however many things that would be, a couple of them would be a big enough hit to make some money, I'm sure. So it's uh, it is, it's a, such a bizarre industry in that, and it is so frustrating. And, you know, I... And, and time passes. That's it. You know, you're, you're 40 or you're 35 thinking, oh, I've still got lots of time and you've got these ideas. And then suddenly you're 53 going, fuck, you know, there's, I can see the end of the runway here. And it's, and it's not that those things aren't going to happen. They're not all going to happen because they can't possibly happen. So, yeah, so it's nice just to get on with stuff. And that's what, and I think that's, that's what's, and this year, you know, I've been very well placed this year because obviously I've been just been doing stuff online anyway. Uh, and it was, yeah, so we set up all this equipment, like I say, and then we just go, oh, fuck, I can absolutely do nearly everything from home doing stuff like this from home you know this would have been in 2019 you'd invite me on this it would take the whole day for me to come into london i live in Hertfordshire now but i come into london you know kick around for a bit get get home again and so you can just you can do so many things so quickly and so efficiently online but also you know a lot of comedians obviously weren't prepared for what was a very very sudden loss of absolutely all of their work um, whereas, mm. you know, luckily for, from my personal point of view, you know, I was, I was able to pretty easily just go, okay, we can, we can just shift this over to being me doing it from home. Uh, and so, you know, you still, I've still got a job, but it's, um, but, you know, hopefully this year will make more clubs and more comedians, uh, and more creative people realize that they can just sort of get on with quite a lot of the stuff on their own. How do you feel about going back to outside work 
Are you quite comfortable now? Is it like, oh, I'd rather just sit here and not... I mean, I'd, I'll certainly go and do some outside work. I'll tell you, it was not, we, I did Taskmaster this year and uh, we recorded all the, uh, the tasks, but we did the studios at the end of July and it was obviously the first thing out of lockdown, really. And that was just absolutely amazing to go and just... And it was so funny. We had, I just laughed and laughed for five days, uh, like tears streaming down my cheeks. And it was so cathartic. It was so wonderful. So I don't, I don't think I'd want to be completely shut away here. But it's been nice to spend more time with the family. It's been nice to be absolutely sure that I'm make, taking an even part in everything, which sometimes if I'm on tour, I kind of feel guilty if I'm away for a few nights that Katie has to deal with more than uh, is, seems fair. Um, although last night she had a gig in London. And so, you know, that, that can it works both ways. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, to be able to pick and choose a bit more, uh, and to be able to do things from home and, to, and you know, I don't know. I think, I think it's been interesting with this puppet show, which I call a puppet show, but I think it's, been, it's sort of turning into a bit more of a sketch show. And I think if we spend a bit more in the new year, if we're able to go outside and film sketches, you know, together and uh, do spend a bit more time on this, so they're not just green screen zoom calls, you know, we'd ba- we're basically doing sketches that I write in and, you know, and a couple of hours and then we just do them, straight off and maybe do two takes of them and they, they sort of go out regardless of how you know technically brilliant they are. But it kind of works for what we're doing because they're, they're sort of Zoom call sketches. Um, but, yeah, it'd be nice to take that out and, and do, like, a bit more and, and, you know, just be in control of your own stuff, I guess. So, that, that I've, you know, I did a few... I've done a few short films with other people and you kind of think, this is quite nice that you can actually get something that looks really good and just have a 10-minute idea and get it together in a couple of days fairly easily so i think um i'd sort of prefer to do that than a big sitcom that people are coming in and saying can we change this can we do this can we you know like my radio four sitcom relativity which has done pretty well on the radio you know my manager was saying would you do it as a could you do it as a studio sitcom which with an audience which is not really what it is you know and you kind of go the minute you take something to tv you're automatically so you know you compromise compromise and then it's just it's just a completely different thing than you wanted it to be. So I'd rather it was the thing that it is rather than be famous with it and, and it's not what I wanted to do, you know. What was, what was your experience like when you were writing Time Gentlemen, Please? Oh, man, it was, it was crazy because I was basically writing an American-style sitcom on my own, really. I mean, we, we'd, um, we did 20... Well, we had 13... The first series was 13 episodes initially and me and Al worked together and Stu Lee was the script uh, editor and did, and wrote a couple of episodes but they they weren't really right for the, they didn't kind of come out right. and his script editing's always like quite an easy job anyway i think unless something's really what, way off what is what is no, script editing i mean it's nothing it's just a, it's being another eye and <laughs> saying you know i script edited the third series of little britain and literally made no difference to anything nothing i said got taken on board they were up and running and you know, either if you liked it, you can't congratulate me. If you hated it, you can't blame me. But, you know, I wrote a couple of sketches and they didn't use and I had a couple of suggestions, but they knew what they were doing so much. So if, if so, you know, I think if something's new and needs a bit of help guiding in terms of plotting and stuff, then the script editor is... There are some very good script editors, but it can be um, it can be a job where you can coast by. Um, but, yeah, it, but we end up... So we end up writing together. We were writing together. We wrote a few episodes together and then we sort of started the series... And so Al really wasn't available for the writing. We were quite a long way behind, even in the 13. And then they gave us another nine halfway through the series. So I was basically writing, and it got to the point, 
I think we had to do nine shows in ten weeks, right? So I had to, I basically had to write nine episodes of the sitcom uh, in ten weeks. So I was just, it was just a production line where uh, I think we recorded on a Thursday. Uh, I would bring in the new script on Friday. The as, track- as as you were filming, so it wasn't like in ten weeks' time we need nine scripts, but it was no, just like we're we, filming- we need to, we need a script a week basically. That's horrible. Week. So I mean, it, it was sort of insane, and I was I was going out with one of the, I was going out with Judas Wallow who was in the show, and so it was, I, there was no escaping from the show, uh, and it was very very intense. But look, I was quite young; I was thirty something and early thirties, uh, and it was really well paid. It was really, and we got proper. Me and Al got proper. It was Sky, and we got proper treatment. And Avalon actually were, gave us the production fee to share, which they didn't have to do, which was like a huge amount of money that she split between us. So every episode, so when we were doing an episode a week, you know, I bought a brand new car with one week's wages, you know, during fucking hell. So, um, uh, so it, it, because it had taken me a week to write a show, which should have obviously taken me a month, but like in America, you'd have a team of 20 people doing it, but you know, I had me, yeah. I'd send stuff to Ali, might chip in a joke. I could send it to Stu who would come back with notes sometimes, but not really. And certainly once you're in this process, there was no real place for the script. Right. So they were recording on Thursday. I was, I'd present them the script on Friday, the, the draft script. Over the weekend, I would rewrite the draft script. On Monday, we'd read it again. I would make changes, and on Tuesday, I would give them the fin- absolute finished script that they would properly rehearse on Tuesday and Wednesday, do it on Thursday, and on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, I was writing the next week's episode, and so on and so on. But I, if, you, if I'm honest, I don't think those ones were... I think they might have been better than the ones that I spent a month writing. You know, you, if you have the time, you keep on going over it and changing it. And, I, you know, I'd done enough of them that characters had been established, and it had that kind of... There was a lot of characters and they all had catchphrases and they all had ways they would act. And it was kind of, I really enjoyed it. And I was good at that sort of thing, you know, and I don't think anyone else could have done it. Um, But I was, I I write in a weird way when I'm writing sitcoms is that I don't know what's going to happen until it's finished really. So I'm not, I don't plan it. I kind of start it, have an idea of where it might go and then see what happens. And then I think the surprises are genuine surprises. But, you know, I was doing the proper interlocking two or three, two or three subplots, meeting up, paying off 24 minutes long, 25 minutes long. It might have been something like that. So they were, they were tricky scripts to write. Um, so it was absolutely overwhelming. And then we did another series the next year, which was 13 episodes. It was less episodes. We did 35 altogether, so it was 13 episodes. And it was easy. It was apps. We, uh, you know, we we got it. And a couple of young lads came and wrote a couple of episodes, which I kind of looked over, and they were fine. And you know, I tinkered with a bit. But basically, we got got the character set up and had ideas and had enough time. It wasn't huge amounts of time, but it wasn't five days. <laughs> and so we'd finished that. We'd, we'd I'd sort of finished the scripts almost in advance on that one. Though we kept on tinkering with them. But I like to work with the actors as well. That's why I think like I find it difficult to get sitcoms off the ground because I write. I, I'll, I don't want to. I don't put all my effort into the pilot. You know, into the first draft because I want to give that to actors, let them dick around, hear it read out, and then make my changes. Then work out what needs to be added, what needs to be taken away then, you know. So I, I kind of don't want to sit down and forensically write something until I've got to that point, you know. And I can... I don't think I could do that now. I, you know, I'd find, I find it writing really, really hard now. But uh, I was I was a, in a very fecund period. But it completely wiped me out and and um, I, I'd sort of set me back, really, because I did, did that for two years. 
earned a lot of money. Okay, so I did. You know, it's, at the very least, you could say that's six years wages in two years, but it was six years of great wages in two years. I had money for the first time in my life, and it, then it was very. And then bought a bought a house. Sort of sold my flat and bought a house. Uh, and although I needed to earn money to pay the mortgage, um, it was kind of hard to think. You know, I'd worked so hard up to that point with all of the stuff, with the Stuart stuff as well. Um, you know, I'd sort of given up my 20s and half of my 30s and not really gone and done much outside of work. And so it was hard to motivate myself, but also I was kind of burnt out from it as well. So I had a few years where I still did some stuff, but, and I did, I started doing that, those sort of stand up shows. But um, it took, there was a year or so where I was really sort of 2002, 2003, I would say. You know, I didn't really know where I was going with my life, and uh, and and I sort of was living. I was meant to move into this big house with my girlfriend who had a son, and then we broke up. So I ended up living in a, you know, a family house on my own. <laughs> and it was quite depressing, uh, and I think I was properly depressed. And I think also just a bit put out that I'd done all this work on stuff. You know, in Lee and Harry, I worked much harder than Stu did, so I did a lot of the kind of grafting of of the work of putting together the sketches and doing the additional writing and ironically the script editing. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then I'd done this Al Murray thing and that had been a huge, huge amount of work. And it, it sort of felt like nothing had really been given any credit, you know, for what I'd done. And so it was very hard to go, why am I going to push myself into doing something else? Which was a yeah. shame because I was, I was in a position where, you know, people were having meetings with me and I was pitching ideas uh, and getting commissions, but then not writing the scripts because I was too burnt out to write them, really. So it was. A, it was you a, have done that now, right? You have sort of taken control again. So by yeah. doing the kind of podcasts and things, you're now fully in control of that kind of destiny, right? Yeah, but well, that's what it sort of appealed to me about it. Because, you know, but because when you write something, you're still, you know, if, you're good, if it's going to be good, even though it, what I said, you know, it's not the finished product when I give it in, you still got to put your heart and soul into it. It still has to work as a script. It's you know it's not the same as having children, but they they're your you know they're your babies, and if someone just goes nah, that's shit, which is what happens, you know, or someone move leaves and then you're left and they go oh no the next person doesn't want it, you've worked that hard on it and then it just gets stamped on. The the temptation is to just go well a I won't do it then because I can't face that, but it's you know to to know there's a very good chance that the thing you love and are working hard on won't ever happen is very difficult to get through. So, yeah, so when po- the idea of podcasting yeah. came along and I had the control to do, just to know it would get made, that was a completely different thing for me. But, you know, that's... But it was sort of me still absenting myself from the from the industry, I suppose. It was like me saying, I'm just going to go off and do... You know, you're all not really getting what I'm doing. And I was still getting some work, you know, in this time, but not nothing that really kind of flew. Um, so was was uh, someone like Shoka your first solo uh Show. I'd, I'd done um, Christ on a Bike and Talking Cock in 2001, 2002. I think those those shows were. So, but I'd sort of seen them as theatre shows, not really stand up shows. And they were stand up shows, really. But I just didn't. I just sort of didn't think of myself as a stand up at that point, and I had a difficult relationship with stand up. So I'd, um, you know, I classified them as being one man shows and didn't give them a stand up. So yeah, I came back in about 2004 and started doing the circuit. And then what developed out of that was was someone like Jogger, which was a kind of a bit of a fuck you, I'll just do what I want sort of uh, stand-up show and, like, quite challenging and, uh, you know, long routines. 
but it was, you know, it was it was the Daily Telegraph worst comedy experience of two thousand and four or five, whenever it was. That's crazy. Um, I, I I went to see that in two thousand four, and I'm yeah. pretty sure that that was what I was writing theatre and sketches and taking them up to Edinburgh. Sure. And we came to see one of your performances. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's one of the ones where I was just like, oh, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. It was you had like three 20 minute routines, basically, didn't you? Yeah, in the hour it was. And then in the, in the tour, it was like an, it was too long in, by the tour set show. But the guy, the, the Telegraph guy saw it in Edinburgh and there was like maybe one or two performances in Edinburgh where it it was a struggle. So I think he might have seen one of the bad performances of it. But I was still kind of it was a point where I was very sensitive because I was coming to stand up and. And he was saying, you, you start to question if Richard Herring was ever funny. It was one of those kind of reviews, you know. Yeah. And you kind of think, well, like, it was a year, like, things like Titty Bang Bang had come out. There was some bad stuff, right? So it wasn't even stand-up. It was the worst thing in comedy, according to the Daily Telegraph, which, again, isn't the worst thing that can happen to you, because obviously the Daily Telegraph is a sort of reputa- certain reputation. But I think, like, for a comedy critic to come to that and not go, oh, God, I can see that he's doing something, like, at least interesting with the form here. Um, but um, even then, you say comedy critic, but I think with the kind of broadsheets in Edinburgh, they're, they're not really people. Well, he that is though. Them. It was it was one of the Dominic guys, Dominic Cavendish. Okay. You know, he is a comedy critic, so he was. You know, he should. I, you know, I, I think he just decided to lay the boot. It was a weird thing because just as I came back to stand up, which I resisted doing, Stu suddenly exploded as a stand up, and so you know, I never really wanted to be like the. Stand up. I'm glad I got back to it, but it was never like this is my ambition to be the world's greatest ever stand up. I just want to do it and experiment with the form of it. But also, because of we, because of our shared heritage, we both were doing quite similar things. But he'd had 15 more years experience and broke through basically more or less in that year as a, as his. You know, I think that might have even been the year he had broke through with his big show. And so you, I was sort of being compared to Stuart as if I had copied him, and I was doing similarly challenging deliberately dull or deliberately irritating or deliberately repetitive i think with a bit more um uh sort of a bit more kind of scope i think than some of the stews repetitive stuff a bit more sort of comedic imagination and taking ideas and running with them um but you know that was quite difficult because then we were both you know it was hard for me to come back and do that so i sort of i sort of had to then think how am i going to reinvent myself as something that isn't sort of the lee and herring vibe as well yeah but there's a Venn diagram with you where you're completely different comedians, but there is a crossover point. Yeah. And yeah. It's not really fair to sort of... Um, you were in a double act together, so there's yeah. obviously going to be some crossover. But Of course, but then nobody seemed to... You know, it was that... It was just... That seemed to be the vibe. It seemed to be, was Richard Herring ever funny? And, oh, Stuart, Richard Herring's... Either people knew I'd been in the double act and thought I'd copied him or didn't know I was in the double act and thought I'd copied him, and either, both of which is sort of weird. But, yes, but, you know, there was no, that, has Stuart Lee copied Richard Herring? You know, there was none of that, which was sort of weird. It was weird the way it came out. But that, Richard, is all bullshit. <laughs> and, it's not so, and it's not something but that I got you're a, you know, It was difficult at the time, but I kind of got over it. I don't, don't, I don't care about it, but it's, it was sort of, it made it difficult to come back to stand-up, and that was all the, all the stuff that was happening. And it was weird that the, a show I was, again, I think probably my most, in terms of selling DVDs, that's the show that sold... Which we do through Go Faster Stripe again, sort of a homemade, uh, you know, not not official industry thing, but that was the one that sold the most. So it was it was it was a good show. It was an interesting show. When I came, I did them all again. You know, like when about 2015, rather than going to Edinburgh, I did all 11 shows and a new show. So I did 12 shows in six weekends at the Leicester Square Theatre, and that was the only one that I felt as again as a married man and with kid with a kid at that point, I 
just the relentlessness of someone like Shoggart in the two-hour version, I felt was just too much. It's sort of, I think, a slightly... I, I, I had to cut it anyway for time, but I would... I, if, if I went... That's one of the only shows I would change if I went back and did it, just because I think there was too much. It was too much relentlessness, and it was too much trying to irritate people. And, and now, as a parent, you think, this could be what someone's one night out in a month. And I don't want to come just and aggravate people. From, sure, <laughs> but as a twenty as a twenty three year old audience member, uh, <laughs> I I still love that show. Good, you know, and I, I still I, remember I still, that I still, show. I just, yeah, we we had David Baddiel on a couple of weeks and uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, and when I watched Mary Whitehouse Experience, that was one of the first series that sort of made me feel like I've got my own taste in comedy. Sure, but then when. We sort of like grew up watching uh, Fist of Fun and This Morning with Richard, not Judy. It was you and Stuart uh, that kind of like made me actually want to do comedy. Sure. You know, it wasn't That's just that nice I had my own taste. So I think that because you talk, you're talking a lot about like your direct experience mm. in your career, but what you, but what you maybe uh, don't have like a, a, an idea about is kind of like how influential that you've been. I sort of think I do, but you know, it's sort of it's still, lives. it's sort of still interesting. I think like, but that's, that's the sort of dichotomy with my career is I think within the industry and within comedians, it was, you know, the number of comedians were influenced by uh, either Fist of Fun or my, my or Stuart solo shows. Like on my, on my podcast, so many people have gone, the first time I ever saw a stand up show was you at the Frog and Bucket or you, you know, wherever. So, so, it's kind of made, you know, people. I, I'm aware that comed- we were very much a comedian's comedian sort of show, and and but also I think it gave, gives a sort of false impression within the industry of uh, of, of our standing in, in a way. And I think outside of people who were really into comedy, we didn't make that much impact with the with the double act stuff. I think so. You know, it, it's what is lovely. The people who liked it still love it twenty year, twenty five years on. Uh, as I say, I've you know resurrected this driving instructor character just for a bit of a laugh because of the moustache, and uh, and I saw that yeah actually this is a good character we might be able to do, I might be able to do more with this as we go. So there was very good stuff in there, and I'm I'm very proud of it. I think Stu's less proud of it, but I'm very proud of it. Because and, you have a different uh, perspective on it than everyone else does, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But I, you know, but I think it was is a different. We were trying to do we were trying to do groundbreaking and interesting stuff, and I think we both have always tried to do that in different sorts of ways. Um, but yeah, so it's great that people liked it, and it's great people. And you know, and how lucky were we um, to be in that position where we were in, in our twenties and got our own TV shows? You know, we had four series of our own TV shows. Um, I don't think we. Appre- I don't. You know, again, I don't think I fully appreciated how amazing that was. Also, compared to now, there was just no competition. Not the competition there is now to get on TV, or and, and there's so limited opportunities to get anything like that on TV, but there's so many stand-ups now. What I was going to say, do you think what you're doing now is also pioneering, right? Yeah, I think it is. now feels like you're doing something where I think, especially for other comics, they kind of look towards you and going, oh, you're doing podcasts, and you seem to, at the start of the pandemic, or maybe it was just before, I'm going on to Twitch, and it feels like almost what you do, others still follow and go, it feels like, what are you doing? That feels like that. <laughs> well, right. you know, I think I've always been, but I think, you know, in a sense, you sort of realise, I think what I would have wanted at the beginning of my career is not what I've got, but what I've got is better than what I would have wanted, I genuinely think. Right. Because I think by not having any massive success and by, but also being being successful enough to continually work and make a very nice living and 
and and can retain my autonomy throughout means that I'm still I'm still not forced I'm still want to but uh to do interesting stuff whereas if you become very successful a you haven't got the time to do writing you're on tv all the time in all the panel shows and b you know you might have other writers you might have someone saying oh don't you know if I'd been you know David Walliams to pick a name out of the air and in 2010 said hey I'm gonna have a Hitler mustache for a year and see how that works out for me I think someone would have probably said no you're not you're not (laughs) but so so as as a stand-up that was a very important show for me and an interesting year for me and so it's allowed me to do the more esoteric things that uh, that maybe aren't as mainstream but also I'm absolutely doing the things that I want to do so yeah I'm not at all complaining I think I've luckily fallen on my feet uh, I you know uh, and and not through any cleverness or plan I've ended up with what I would consider to be almost the perfect comedic career in that I want to I want to be working in 20 years time uh, and I want to still be doing stupid stuff in 20 years time and experimenting in 20 years time uh, and you know I don't I, that's just the way things have fallen that that's possible for me and I, and mm. um I, you know it, and if things had gone the way that I would have loved them to do when I was 22 uh, then I might, you know, I might be happy in a different way. I don't know, but I think I don't think it would be as interesting as what I'm doing. So yeah, so you know, I'm, I, I think I'm very happy with the way things are going. And as I say, sure. I've been incredibly. This year has been just, um, you know, horrible in many, many ways. But in the work terms for me, just I've been so fortunate to to have all these outlets. I, and I think also like the goal is to keep working and doing stuff that you personally find interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily. Um, it's it's good to kind of like have that drive and to want to want to achieve more and to be better and to feel like oh I could have done that and I could have done that. But it was also important to remember that um, every so often, not that it's your driving force that you're an influencer, but it is important to sort of like every so often reflect a little bit and go oh I've actually had sort of like an impact on people's lives. Yeah. I don't know if I'd I don't know if I'd be doing um, uh, stand up if I if uh, I hadn't been going up to Edinburgh and seeing shows like someone like Sugar. Sure. And also, well, you were one of the first people to come and see. I think you stink. What, Twelve <laughs> years ago, yeah. And you you wrote about us in your blog, and I used that as I think I still use that as one of our um, <laughs> quotes. Yeah. Because we did it again. We did it again last year sure. in Edinburgh, and it was the first time that we got an audience in twelve years of doing that show. <laughs> and you were one of the first people to do it. Um, but I think staying interested. In comedy is very important, you know. So I think, I think like the, and I think a lot of people. I mean, you're getting into that generation. You know, you're getting into the '40s generation, the '50s generation. You see older comics; they either kind of clam up and are annoyed that things have changed, or they embrace the change and and love comedy and love and and love what's going on. And you know, I, I think I'm obviously very much in that second camp where, especially this year, especially with the rehearsal this year, I wanted to kind of really highlight newer people who are doing interesting stuff online you know more than really famous names but uh, but also i'm interested in watching that stuff and that show was you know that was great i didn't know you were tired you know you did a show with katie who became my wife very early on and katie was a newish stand-up and you know and that but that people in that show you and katie and hannah george um you know you've all gone on to do really interesting things but you could see i didn't know whether you'd be you know whether it would be good or be terrible. It was just four kind of newish comedians putting together a show, but it was a really good show. So you can see it. I saw Catherine Ryan, you know, one of those early shows, and no one was going to a show, and I wrote about her. 
<laughs> so, and I thought it, was, <laughs> and I thought it was amazing, and everyone else was saying how useless it was, and it wasn't useless, and obviously she wasn't useless. So. Um, very yeah. nice things about a show of mine in 2014, which is very nice on your blog. Good. Oh, well, you know, so it's all very positive. All, what a great guy I am. I no, brilliant guy. No, but you know, I think. It, but it's also yeah, you're, you're, you're sort of a, a, a fortune teller. <laughs> well, but you know, you, you put can your finger see, on the pulse. You can tell what's going to work and what's. I mean, I, you know, I think I, I think I have good comedic sensibility. I think you know, I, I sort of the thing I'd probably regret is that. I, that people, when I, you know, when I was in my thirties, people weren't getting me to write loads of scripts for TV because I was able to do it. I was good at it, and I had good and interesting ideas. And I think they were too, they weren't like out there, but I think they were too weird for the people who were commissioning comedy. And it, and I think they would have done really well. Uh, and I and I had the hunger and the ability to sit and write all day, which I don't have now, um, and I don't really want to massively get into you know if i write a, a series a year of something then i'm very happy with that but um you know that's that's the one thing i think it's a shame that i didn't get the recognition then from the industry because i think i could have done interesting stuff if i'd been given the budget but i also think you know i wouldn't be where i am now if that had happened and i, and I think it's yeah i would you know it's it's just having a perspective on it and having been through it and made the mistakes and uh you know and and made made some good choices as well but you know you it's a very difficult thing to navigate this career and i think you know i want to i but my instinct is to be helpful to other people uh and uh and i don't think that's a bad thing to do because it's it's um you know i don't think it's about it's obviously there's a competitive element to the business but i don't think you can waste your time thinking oh you know if i help that person will that help me or will that hinder me i think you just have to go Mm -hmm. look that that thing is obviously good. You can tell the difference between. I think if you've got a good comedic sensibility, you can tell the difference. Even in something that isn't your taste, you can tell. You know, Michael McIntyre isn't a hundred percent my taste, but when you see him on stage uh, doing stand up, he's absolutely unbeatable, and he's brilliant at what he does. So, you know, you, I would have predicted, and perhaps not him becoming as successful as he did, but I would have absolutely expected him to become like a big star because he was so good at what he was doing. Um, I can hear my oven beeping, and oh, yeah. it sounds like my gammon is nearly ready. Oh, no. So it looks like we're nearly at the end of our <laughs> Christmas chat, Richard Herring. Um, yes. We've just got... Um, thank you for coming on the show. No, it's my um, pleasure. I, Sorry, I banged I on about to, myself. Or Christ- no, ruined Christmas. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, when the time that you and Stu appeared on uh, PG and Duncan shows, uh, <laughs> the PG and Duncan show, but we haven't got time for that. Oh. Um, so, um, so we've only got time for a very quick round of better or worse with Nathaniel Metcalf. So I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel Metcalf. Okay. Okay, Richard, you have to say that the next person, they're all Christmas themed, is better or worse than the person before. Okay. Based on my opinion to score points. Okay. Beginning with Noel Gallagher. Yeah, okay. Noel Fielding, better or worse than Noel Gallagher? Better. Better, he is better. Is Noel Edmonds better or worse than Noel Fielding? Worse. 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 Is Aleb Jones better or worse than Noel Edmonds? I'm going to go for worse. Better, slightly uh, better. Noddy Holder, better or worse than Anna Jones? A lot better. 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 The Queen, better or worse than Noddy Holder? Not as good. Worse. Yeah, worse. Bing Crosby, better or worse than the Queen? 
better. Is the Queen the Queen Elizabeth or the band the Queen? The Queen Elizabeth. Okay. Um, <laughs> so who was it? Who was it? Who was the Noddy Holder? Noddy Holder. Yeah, no, Noddy Holder was before. It's after Noddy Holder. Who's coming after? Oh, the no, Queen? no, Pete Crosby. Sorry, Pete, Pete Crosby. Crosby. Ah, uh, for my taste, w- worse. Better, better. Yeah, David Bowie. Better or it's not your taste, Nathaniel's taste. I know, but, you know, I knew... James Stewart. I know. Better or worse than David Bowie. Who was it? James Stewart. Dave Stewart is worse than... No, not Dave Stewart. James Stewart. James Stewart. He is better than David Bowie, but you think he's worse. Yeah, I think he's worse. What? Oh, yeah, but Nathaniel's a David Bowie fan. Yeah. Santa Claus. Better or worse than James Stewart? Better. I mean better. Better. Baby Jesus, better or worse than Santa Claus? I mean, he's better. He's the best. I think he's probably worse, because he hasn't done anything. He's a baby, he? he hasn't done anything yet. <laughs> he has, he could talk. <laughs> 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 okay, so, so how many did he score? What's the score? What's the score? I think that's higher. Five! Five! Oh, my God! He scored a five! That means that you're the very worst person that we've had all year at Better or Worse. Right? He's got a five. He's got a five, which means that you're not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manfred, Jessica Denny with ten, David Patel, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill with Morty with nine, Matthew Cosby, Caesar Dent, Charles Heston, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Jason Simon West, Magical Burns, Samantha Morton, Matto, Kine, Miranda Rays, and Griff Rees-Jones, Chris Stark, Stu Whiffen with eight, James King, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny... Vegas with seven, and Gary Delaney and Frank Harper with, with six. But this is amazing, Richard, because everyone always scores eight, and right. no one's a standout. You are the standout, Thank but the you you're the only person with five. This is incredible. Merry Christmas to you Merry and your family. Merry Christmas. We've finished Merry the show on a Christmas miracle. Hooray. Uh, hope everyone at home is having a lovely, happy time. Uh, and if you're not, uh, I hope that you do at this point soon. I've just knocked over my microphone. Uh, <laughs> stay safe. Have a lovely Christmas, and we'll see you in the new year. Thank you for your support all year long. Uh, Goodbye. Bye.